Sometimes we want to be able to redo or relive the last conversation we've had with a person. Have you been there? You would, you would just love to be able to redo that conversation. And this is always true. Um, after that conversation, if they're taken away from us. You know, it's one thing to have a conversation, you go, oh, I wish I could go and redo that. But I'm talking about those conversations that were the last conversation that you had with your loved one and you didn't know it and they didn't know it. And then you think, oh man, I know for me personally, the last time I talked to my dad, you know, it was about pleasantries. It wasn't about anything significant. It wasn't anything meaningful. And I wish I could take back that moment and have a deeper, more significant conversation. Are you with me on that? I know that you do. You, you have those conversations where, man, you would talk about deeper things. You would talk about future things. You would talk about things that are being left behind and things that you're looking forward. You wish that you two could do that last conversation. A spouse, a daughter, a son, parent, even an aunt, an uncle, even a close friend that suddenly was taken away. And you just think, man, I, I wish I had the chance to redo that. Well, today in our text, Jesus is in the upper room. And he knows he's leaving. And all throughout the upper room in that discourse, sometimes called the farewell discourse, the disciples are starting to finally get an inkling that Jesus is going away. And in one particular chapter, he says, in a little while. And that phrase gets repeated like six or seven times. In a little while, you're not going to see me. In a little while, you're going to see me. In a little while. And the disciples, suddenly it's dawning on them that they are not going to see their beloved Lord. And they start getting emotional. Now, the things that are going to be said are going to be important, just like your conversation would be important if you had a chance to relive it, right? Well, I hope you have your Bibles. I want you to turn to John chapter 16. And we're not going to actually start where our text is going to end up being. But in John chapter 16, he's going to say this. Well, we'll start at verse 33, but just the snippet, just the very first beginning of John chapter 33. I mean, uh, John 16, 33. He says, I have said these things to you. I have said these things to you. And if we're going to be students of the Bible, we have to say, what are the things that Jesus has been talking about in this farewell discourse? These last words, these last things that he wants to say and in part, well, if you flip over a chapter or two, you're going to find out that it's going to start off in John 13, 1. He's going to say, now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. He is going to love on them. These next few hours have deep, significant, meaningful, futuristic conversation about the last things that he wants. But these are the last words that Jesus, our text, 
the last words that Jesus really speaks to his disciples. So that adds weight to it. Just like, man, what, what would be the one thing, that, just two sentences that you would say to the one that you wish you could have that conversation with? They'd be significant, right? You'd probably take a moment and you'd filter it down and you'd filter it down and go, oh man, if I, I know for me, if I could talk to my dad one more time, I would have to think hard and long about what I would want to say to him or what I would want him to say to me, right? And so Jesus knows his time has come. The disciples know Jesus' time has come. And so the last few sentences of Jesus are powerful. But what about these other things? Well, if you look at your heading of your Bible, and I don't know if your Bible has these little cool little headings, and it just kind of tells you by paragraph by paragraph what Jesus is about to talk about. And, and first of all, he's going to wash the disciples' feet, right? And then he's going to go on and say, a new commandment I give you, love one another. Not as the world loves, but I want you to love with the kind of love that I have. I'm the qualifier. I want you to love like I love. Love one another. And then in 14.1, he says this, let not your hearts be troubled. He knows that they are breaking inside. And their heart is just being crushed. And he says, believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that there are? And I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And then he's going to say the iconic in, in, in that same chapter, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes to the Father but through me. These are the last things he's sharing. And then he says, and I'm sending you the Holy Spirit. The promise of the Holy Spirit. I have to go so the Spirit can come. And two times in uh, 1427, look at that if you want to. 27, it says this. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. He just said that a moment ago. Don't let your hearts be troubled. And he says it again. Neither let your heart be afraid. And then he says, I am the true vine. I am, you are the branches, I'm the vine. Stay connected to me. And then he's going to say, the world's going to hate you because of me. And then in 16.1 he says this, I have said all of these things to you to keep you from falling away. And then he goes on and tells what the work of the Holy Spirit actually is. He's going to be a comforter, but he's going to be there to convict the world of sin. He's going to bring back to remembrance all the things you've ever heard me teach. And he says, and your sorrow is going to last for only a little while, and then it's going to turn to joy. And now we get to Jesus' final last words. Let's read it. Verse 33, he says this. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And then Jesus launches into a prayer, and then they go out to the Mount of Olives singing songs. Jesus is going to get on his knees and go before the Father three times. 
while the disciples' eyes are so heavy and their bellies are full, they're going to fall asleep. And then the crowd, the mob's going to come and grab him in the middle of the night. And no longer is he going to be with his disciples until he's resurrected. This is the last sentence of Jesus. Let's read it again. It has, it is important. These are the last things that Jesus said to his disciples. He said, I have said these things to you that in me you may have what? Peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. So here's the very first fill in the blank if you're filling out the, the outline. In Jesus, you will have peace. Peace is described so many ways because it's one of those things that it's, a, it's, a, it's an emotion and yet it's a state of mind, it's a state of being, it's a state of, of, of shalom, of wholeness. You could use the word tranquility. You could use the word, uh, I, li I like one of the Greek definitions of, of peace. It means undisturbed. Isn't that nice? Undisturbed. It's like virgin soil that, that has never been disturbed. It's perfect. It's peaceful. It's, it's, it's exactly as it's intended to be. It's just undisturbed. But I also like this definition. Freedom from worry. Isn't that a nice definition of, of peace? Freedom from worry. It's not an absence of conflict. We've been technically at peace with many of our enemies, right, as a country. But that's not real peace. Peace is freedom from worry. Everything is right here, right? When you have peace, everything's okay here. You're right this way with God. You're right this way with others. You're right inside. And then you're right with creation, your purpose in life, the, where you're going, your destiny. Everything is, you're at peace and you can sleep. I don't know if any of you sleep super well, but I hope you do because of the peace that God gives you. I, I do have a little bias today by showing a picture. So let me show you a picture of my granddaughter, Ava, okay? Aww. That little girl's at peace. I don't know if you sleep like that, but you should. Because Jesus says, in me, you will have peace. Now, I don't know where she's at cognitively. I don't know how babies dream. I don't know any of the physiological stuff of little babies. All I know is that she is well taken care of and she doesn't worry about her diapers. She doesn't worry about a, her bath. She doesn't worry about anything. Now, her tummy tells her when it's hungry, right? But otherwise, she has no fear and she knows to cuddle. Isn't it amazing how babies know that they want to be held, they want to be grasped, they want to be swaddled, they, they find contentment? That's that peace. <laughs> That it says, in Jesus, you will have peace. Now you can take Ava off. Uh, I want people to look at me and not her, okay? <laughs> Think about Noah. 
Noah was a preacher of righteousness while he's building an ark. And the day comes where God says, get in the ark. And if you read the text carefully, you'll notice that God closes this big old door, a door that had to take in elephants, a door that had to take in large animals, rhinoceroses, and, and he seals it up. And then the storm comes. And it's not just a storm. It is the storm of storms where the, the very surface of the earth, according to scripture, rips open and the fountains of the deep burst forth and they shoot a plume of water into the sky due to the intense pressure, maybe a mile, two miles, maybe three miles up into the air and suddenly the, the sun is blocked out. Now imagine you're outside of the ark and you're starting to see all of this take place. What's going to grip your heart? Nothing but fear. Nothing but, oh, what have we done? Yet Noah is in the ark. And what does Noah have? He's got peace. You better believe it. He's got peace. He knows he is safe. Even though he knows the world is being destroyed as he knew it, even though he knows that the, the storm is come, the flood has come, the rains. You know, what was Noah feeling the moment the ark started to lift up and start to swell? You know what he had? He had peace. I don't know. I, I grew up by the ocean, and so you, we've seen storms on the ocean. The wind is howling and blowing and the white caps, that's what the, when the waves get blown, they produce that white spray and foam and the swells go up and down and it looks pretty torturous out there. But the most amazing thing is if you go under the surface just a little, it is calm under the water. It's, it, it's calm. Jesus said we will have peace even in the midst of the storm. We'll have peace even when the world is being destroyed. We will have peace even when the winds of change are blowing and we have no idea what direction they're going. We can have peace and we say, thank you, Jesus. Isn't he amazing? Hallelujah, right? Amen. Man, Jesus gives us that peace that surpasses understanding. You can't put it in an algorithm. You can't look at added under a microscope. It defies logic. That's what Paul said. It is beyond understanding that God can give us a peace in the midst of this crazy world. A peace that surpasses understanding. It's not logical. In his last words to his disciples, he says, in me, you will have peace. Don't let your heart break. Don't be worried. This world isn't destined for eternity, but you are, and I am. In me, in me alone, you will have peace. Peace in the midst of a crumbling uh, country. Peace in the midst of health issues. Peace in the midst of hardships. Peace in the midst of uncertainty, or political corruption, or big brother spying on us. You know, yeah, yeah. You know, when the pandemic hit and the politicians in Washington knew it was ha happening, so they all sold their stock 
right? And then the stock market dropped 30%. And then those same politicians went and bought back the same stock that they sold a day earlier and made millions of dollars. And at, and at first it just, it's like, wait, this is wrong. You know what? I have peace though. They might have temporary peace, but I have eternal peace because of Jesus. But let's go back to the text, because that's the first thing. Out of the, the last sentences of Jesus, he says, in me you will have peace, and no other thing. You're not gonna have peace in your 401, your IRA, your house. You, you are going to have only grounded peace in me. But he goes on and he says, in the world, you will have tribulation. We don't like that. You know, if, if we have the ability to, we just kind of cross that out, wouldn't we? We don't like to hear that we're going to have tribulation. He says it. In the world, you will have tribulation. Uh, turn in your Bibles to First Peter with me. First Peter. Go to chapter 4. Let's pick it up at verse 12. Now Peter is writing to a bunch of people who got it rough. He said, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. How could he say that? Because Jesus told him, you're going to have troubles. You're going to have trials. You're going to have tribulations. And so Peter just reminds his listeners, hey, don't think it's something strange. I know the world loves to peddle a soft gospel. Come to Jesus and all your problems go away. Come to Jesus and your bank account will be full. Come to Jesus and you can do whatever you want. That's not what Jesus said and that's not what Peter said. He said, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Man, we're going to have trouble. Now, not only persecution, but we're just going to have day-to-day -day trouble. Car breakdown? Yeah. Lose your job? Yeah. Got something on your skin that you don't know what it is and you got to go to the doctor to see what it is? Yeah. Because that word tribulation encompasses just the trials of life. Do you remember when Jesus talked about the, the, the soils of the heart? And he said, uh, a sower went out to sow and he cast seed and, and some fell on, on rocky soil and, and some on thorny soil and some on good soil and some on a hard path. Do you know in the, the rocky soil, it says that it sprouts quickly, but because of tribulation and persecution, he makes a definite distinction. Tribulation and persecution, they don't believe the word and they fall away. The Greek word for tribulation primarily means a pressing, means pressure. You know what pressure is, right? You've had pressure. Anything that burdens the spirit, 
pressure of circumstances. And so we live in Jesus's kingdom while we're under pressure in a fallen world. That's our dual state, isn't it? And so we have to prepare our hearts. We have to prepare our hearts with his words. The world is going to pressure you to conform. The world is going to pressure you and, and it's going to dump on you. The world's going to dump on you. If it has its chance, it's going to dump on you. And it's going to squeeze you to hurt you. But Jesus says, but take heart. Now, I love these words, take heart. Be encouraged, take heart. The same words that Jesus spoke to, what, do you remember the paralytic? His friends come to Jesus, but they can't get to Jesus because the room is so crowded. So they tear open the roof and they lower down this man who's a paralytic. And Jesus turns to him and says, take heart. Your sins are forgiven. When, when the woman who is chasing Jesus in a crowd, she's been bleeding for 12 years. I can't even imagine her immune system or, or her lack of iron. She has no energy and she's fighting tooth and nail to get through a crowd just so she can touch the hem of Jesus's garment because she thinks to herself, if I could just touch him, I will be healed. And you know what happens, don't you? She fights her way through the crowd. This woman who has no strength at all and touches the hem of his garment. And Jesus says, whoa, whoa, power just left me. Power just left me. And he turns and says to the crowd, he says to Peter, who touched me? And Peter says, are you out of your mind? He doesn't say it quite like that, but he says, Jesus, the whole crowd is shoving and pushing against you. And what happened? The woman dropped to her knees. And she confessed in front of everyone, I touched you and I am healed. And do you know what he said to her? Take courage. Your faith has made you well. When Jesus is walking on the water and the disciples are struggling, struggling, they've been struggling for hours and suddenly they see Jesus, they think it's a ghost. And what does Jesus say? <gasps> Take courage. It is I. What did Jesus say in his last words? In me, you'll have peace. In the world, you're going to have trouble. But take courage. Take courage. Man. God's got this. He's going to do the heavy lifting. Take courage. So here's the third fill in the blank. Take heart. Jesus has overcome the world. Amen? Amen. Man. Jesus says to these Pharisees that are attacking him, says, well, you cast out demons because you're the prince of the demons. And Jesus says, you know, you silly, silly Pharisees. He says, how can I plunder Satan? You can't go into a strong man's house and rob him until you subdue the strong man. Jesus' point is, I am casting out demons because I have defeated Satan. 
I am more powerful than Satan. Now he hadn't quite getting there at the cross is total, but he basically is saying, I'm stronger than he who is in the world, who is going after you. I can bind the world, the flesh, Satan. I am casting out demons because I am stronger than Satan. You know, in, in John 1, that famous in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and all. In that little uh, pericope, it, it, it says this that, let me quote it for you. It says, The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness not, has not overcome it. See, Jesus has overcome it. Are you with me on that? Jesus has overcome the darkness. He's overcome the world. He's overcome the flesh. He's overcome the ruling principalities and powers that have set themselves up against God in the heavenly places. He has overcome them. That's why when Jesus on the cross... You know, there, there are a few sayings from the cross, and you should look at them. You have to go to several of the synoptic gospels to figure out all, all the sayings of Jesus from the cross. But one of the very last ones, right before he says, Father, receive my spirit, he says this, It is finished. He won. He won. That means you win. He has overcome the world. He has defeated Satan. Satan has been judged. Now, let me put this little caveat in there. We're awaiting his sentencing. He's been judged. Just like if you go to court, Michael, let's say you rob a bank. Not that you're going to go rob a bank, but let's say you rob a bank. The process is going to be that, first of all, they're going to catch you. They're going to put a case against you. Then they're going to try the case. And the jury's going to come back and says, you're guilty. And you have been judged. But now we have to wait a few months, sometimes, to find out what your sentencing is. You know, Satan has been judged. He's been judged. Yes, he's still exerting power, but soon and very soon he's going to be forever prisoned. Amen. No more to torment any of us. No more. He's defeated him. Turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. What an iconic passage Paul wrote when he says these words beginning at verse 31. What then shall we say to these things that is being heirs with Christ, our future glory with Jesus, all the good things that we have in Jesus through the Spirit? He says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also give him graciously all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, 
who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us right now. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. But no, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, or things present, nor the things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor death, nor anything else, and all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God and Christ Jesus our Lord. And you just got to go, wow, that is a pick-me-upper. That, is, that, that charges your batteries, baby. To be able to go back out through this door and face whatever has to be faced in a fallen, broken world. Because Jesus has given you his peace and he has warned you that that place out there is out to get you. But guess what? He has overcome. And nothing can separate us from his love or his grace or his mercy or his tenderness. Hallelujah. Those outside of Christ have been overcome by the world. Can I say that again? Those outside of Christ have been overcome by the world. But those who are in Christ Jesus have overcome the world. I don't know what 2021 is going to bring, and neither do you. But three things I can count on in these last deep, significant, all important words of Jesus to his disciples. In me and me alone, you will have peace. Do not look towards anything else. You will have some trouble, but that's temporary. Number three, Jesus has overcome. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. And that goes not just against Satan, but against your flesh and against the world powers and systems that are out there trying to destroy your faith. I, I, I met with my coach this week and my coach said 40% of the people that were attending church a year ago have dropped out of church. 40%. There's a shakening. You're either going to be overcome by the world or in Christ you're going to be an overcomer of the world. Let me pray. Father God, we thank you, Jesus, for the victory that is ours and you and you alone. Father, forgive us when we have oh, looked to the, our own thinking, for your ways are higher than our ways, and we look only to you. Father, in this time of communion, this time of celebration, this time of, of solemnness of where we just come before you and we lift our hands up or we get on our knees or we lay prostrate on the ground 
and just worship you, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, for in you we have the victory. Thank you for the peace that surpasses understanding. We praise you, we worship you, we give you the glory. In the name of Jesus we pray, amen.